We've had a great privilege in this country in many ways, and this, this country's got a, an unfortunate history and you know, a difficult history. But in one aspect, we've, we've been incredibly privileged that the gospel has been so openly preached, and people have been incredibly open to the gospel in this country. And uh, it still is compared to many places around the world, but as we see people turning against the gospel, let's not shrink back, but step forward and let our light shine ever brighter and, and be those who uh, really hold to the truth of what Jesus said, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, we'll come across persecution, we'll come across opposition, but we will steadfastly commit to helping Christ build His church. And that's devotion, isn't it? That despite opposition, despite difficulty, despite resistance, despite persecution, we will continue to move forward. And in Acts 2.42, when it says, they devoted themselves, that word devoted, that's what it means. It literally means to move forward under pressure, to advance despite resistance. And I, I love in Hebrews, it says, it, it, it talks about people who, who've, who've forsaken Christ and, and, and things like this. And then it says, but we are not those who shrink back. That'd be a lovely thing that, that Jesus could say about us. They were not those who would shrink back. But despite our, our, our difficulties, despite the economic situation, despite the political situation, despite family situations, and no matter what situation we're in, we will not shrink back. But we will continue to press forward into the things of God, press forward serving God, and press forward into Jesus and reflecting Jesus to a world that increasingly needs Him. And that's the picture of the church in Acts 2, 42, 47. Don't, you know, let's not imagine that that church was in this rosy situation where it was so easy. It was incredibly difficult. Those 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, and it's an incredible story and, and you know, the, a, a powerful move of God. But for a respectable Jewish person, to go home to his family and say, actually, I've become a follower of Christ. I've become a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. You know that guy that, that you put to death as a false Messiah? Well, I believe he's the real Messiah, and I believe he's alive, and I'm giving my life to him. You, you think that came without opposition? There was official opposition. We read about the apostles very soon after that being beaten imprisoned. Many scholars believed that Paul was divorced. That's a shocker for some of you. We don't know for sure, but, but as a Pharisee, it would have been normal for him to see marriage as a duty to Israel at a young age. And many scholars believe that when he converted to Christ, his family deserted him. And that still happens today. I, I had a friend who, who came from a, a, a Muslim background, gave himself to Christ, and his father disowned him. On the day that he got baptized, his dad was waiting for him with a shotgun to shoot him because his father's thinking was, it's, it's a disgrace to the family. Better I kill my son than have him be a follower of Jesus. 
That's the reality of millions of Christians, millions of followers of Jesus today, that they face very real, very tangible, and a very heavy price for following Jesus. And I think sometimes we're a bit soft. You know, our difficulty is, oh, it's a bit cold this morning. I don't want to get out of bed. Our, our, our opposition for keeping quiet is, oh, somebody might call me a, a bad name. But where do we stand when it might cost us our job, our families, our freedom, and our lives? That's devotion. In fact, in human relationships, we, we look around and, and we all know people and, and they, they seem devoted. Like they say, I really love this person until the rubber hits the road, until something happens they don't like, until there's a challenge and then they bail. That's not devotion. Devotion is, you know, when, when I married Chantelle, devotion, it was easy for me to promise her, for, but for her to look at me and say, till death do us part. That, that's quite a commitment, right? Look at me. <laughs> for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, now, no matter how, what challenges we face in life, we are devoted and we're not going to bail. And that's the kind of devotion that we read about in Acts 42 and that's the kind of devotion that Jesus wants of us. Why? Because that's the kind of devotion he shows to us. Imagine if Jesus was as devoted as most people are. What hope would we have when we let him down for the hundredth time? How devoted is he to us? When he was in the garden, under such duress that his sweat dropped down like blood, he was under such duress, and he's, he's praying to the Father, he said, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to save this, this group, look at you. He said, yet yeah, not my will, but your will. I will go to the cross. I will endure the pain and agony and the humiliation of crucifixion because I am so devoted to bringing these people into salvation. That's devotion. And without a devotion, the rest of Acts 42 is just a checklist. We may as well be under the Ten Commandments. If I say, right, guys, okay, now we've got to, we've got to committed, be committed to the apostles' teaching. We've got to be committed to fellowship. We've got to pray. Uh, so we've got to pray so many hours a week. All it is is a set of rules which becomes a burden to you and there's no life. And the reality is I cannot make you devoted Nobody else can make you devoted. I can compel obedience if I've got a big enough stick. Yeah? If I put a literal gun to your head, I can probably make you do things you don't want to do. 
So leaders can, can, can compel obedience at times, but they cannot compel devotion. Devotion has to well up internally. And in Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves. You've got to give yourselves. And it comes first from being connected with Christ. And so when we read Acts 2, 42 to 47, it's not a checklist of things we, we try and attain to be, to be nice people and good Christians. That list is the fruit of a people who first and foremost are devoted to Jesus, who are connected to Jesus, who are becoming more like Jesus, and who want to represent Jesus to other people. Acts 2.42 could well just say, and they devoted themselves to Christ. And then this is what happened. And what happens is that our devotion shapes our actions, our attitudes. You could give me the bank statement of a complete stranger, and I'll tell you pretty quickly what he's devoted to. Yeah? I've never seen Grant's bank statement, but I'm sure it's got surfboard, wetsuit. <laughs> what <are> you statement? <laughs> I can tell you when a young man falls in love. He doesn't have to tell me. I just sit with him long enough and hear what he talks about and who he talks about. And so as leaders, often we're going, guys, we need to do more evangelism. We need to do more evangelism. And John, Jonathan Conrath is an evangelist. Bring your unsaved friends to that thing. They will see Jesus. And he will equip and inspire and impart something of, of a desire to evangelize amongst us. But I can keep drilling into us. We need to evangelize. We need to evangelize. And that is true. We do need to. But if all I do is say, guys, come on, we need to evangelize, it becomes this duty and this burden. But if you fall more in love with Jesus, guess what? You talk about the person you're in love with. And so often we talk about what we need to do, and that's fine, and it's good, and it's right, and it's proper to do that. Scripture does that. But I, I love, for example, in Ephesians, if you read Ephesians, for half of the book of Ephesians, Paul is simply showing us the wonder of what it means to be in Christ. And then in the second half of the book, he says, this is what it then looks like. So I want to talk about one of the things that looks, one of the ways in which we can act out our devotion to Jesus, one way that it looks like being devoted to Jesus. But this isn't a big stick. Guys, you must fulfill this obligation. So guys, if we love Jesus, this is the one of the ways that it manifests itself. And if in this we're resisting and we don't like the message, or we're resistant to obedience to the message, then you can, you've got two choices. You can hate me for the message, but I'm just the postman delivering the message. Or you can ask yourself, is this a sign that my devotion to Jesus isn't where it should be or where it could be?
And I want to talk about us being devoted to fellowship. And I say this as a self-confessed introvert. I must admit, when lockdown happened the first time, I was like, yes. <laughs> but you know what lockdown taught me, amongst other things? Even I need people. <laughs> and I do love people. I just don't quite know how to do it at times, but I love people. But I've heard so many people, and I've even had this attitude as a young man, I love Jesus, I'm just not sure about his family. <laughs> You're laughing because it's true, right? There's a, there was an old poem, it went something like this, I can't remember the exact words, it went something like this, to live above with saints we love, oh now that will be glory, but to live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> Because it's easy to love Jesus because he's perfect. It's a bit harder to love Grant. <laughs> and even harder to love me. <laughs> Amen. Preach it. And there are some people, some people in the church, and some people outside of the church where it's almost impossible to love them. Only almost, because we serve a God of the impossible. And Jesus didn't say, love your friends. He said, love your enemies. Because it's easy to love the people that we like. It's easy to love people who are like me, because I'm lovable. It's easy to, to love people that don't offend me. It's, in fact, it's easy to love people who I have a shallow relationship with. You know why relationships in the church are so much harder than relationships in the world? Because our relationships are real and deep. And we actually talk about things of significance. And we actually speak into one another's lives. And that's pretty offensive, right? It is. And somebody says, can I just say something about, can I just tell you some area of your life that stinks? We say it gently, we say it nicer than that, hopefully, but we, we've got to, we're trying to develop relationships that are meaningful, that shape each other, and where we speak the truth in love. That's harder than just having a friend that supports the same rugby team and all you do is speak rugby. It's so much easier when you're shallow, but to truly love is harder. And we've got to be a people who are devoted to fellowship. That regardless of the difficulties and the challenges, regardless of the offenses, regardless of the differences, we will persevere and we will press on and we will unite our hearts. Confession time. <laughs> <laughs> 
few years ago, um, Chantelle and I, we had some challenges. We needed help. We all need help. We just needed a bit more help for a while. And Grant and Lorna really spent a lot of time investing in us and helping us. And, and I've said this Grant to Grant as well. He said, if it was up to me, he was probably one of the last people on the planet that I would have chosen. Because <laughs> he was so different to me. He's all soft and talks about all these emotions and things. <laughs> all these touchy-feely things. His interests are different to mine. His theology was different to mine. We didn't just connect and, 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 and gel together and think, we're going to be best mates. It took some work. A lot of work from their side. <laughs> but boy, am I glad that we invested in that relationship. Because I've benefited hugely. And some of that touchy-feely stuff that I really hated, I needed. And perhaps I'll never be the most touchy-feely person on the planet, but I'm a little bit more touchy-feely than I used to be. When you're in community, and there's that one person in community that you just want to punch in the throat... <laughs> Come on. Don't tell me you've never felt that way. That one person that's a little bit annoying, that's a little bit different, that speaks too much or doesn't speak enough, or they're too spiritual, or they're not spiritual enough. How devoted are we to fellowship? How devoted are we to overcoming our biases, our fears, our prejudices, our offenses? How many people leave church because they get offended? My kids have offended me often. Often, last night. Last night, my younger daughter said, she said, a friend of mine at school said, you're cool. I said, I am. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I am. <laughs> How offended am I going to get that my daughter thinks I'm uncool? And I'm going to turn around and say, sorry, family, I'm offended. I've got to go and find a different family. It's ridiculous. And it's just as ridiculous when God has joined you to a body to get offended and say, I'm offended. I'm going to go and find a different family. Good luck with that. Because you know what you're taking with you? You. We will have challenges, we'll upset each other, we'll offend each other, often unintentionally. What are we going to do? Are we going to be devoted to fellowship? 
Is it something that's important to us? You see, it is impossible to love Jesus without loving people. John tells us that repeatedly. You say you love God, but you don't love your brother. You're a liar. The inevitable consequence of being in relationship with Jesus is being in relationship with his family. I'm going to be very careful what I say now, but when I married Chantel, I married into her family. What a privilege. (laughs) It is a privilege, but it's not always been easy. It's been difficult. The day we drove down to, we drove, we drove for seven hours to meet with her mum and dad so that I, I could do the good, old-fashioned, honorable thing of asking permission to marry her. And so we had the meeting, we sat down, and I said, listen, this is how we feel. We want to get married. I'd just like to ask your permission. And I got a one-word answer from her mum. No. Things have improved since then, but it's not been easy. <laughs> And let's face it, if I came to marry, to ask you if I could marry your daughter, what would your answer be? Chantel's been to England. <laughs> I took Chantel to England before we were married to meet my family and friends. The, I think the second night we were there, there was a bit of a party. She was there, met all my friends. She spent the whole evening with my father at his side, translating for her. She couldn't understand a word they were saying. They were speaking English. Kind of. It's challenges. But if we truly, if I truly love Chantel, I have to persevere. I have to be devoted to my relationship with her family. And if I'm devoted to Jesus, I have to be devoted to his family. We're in a covenant relationship with Christ. And a covenant with Christ means that, was, that everything I have, I give to him. Everything he has, he gives to me. So I give him all my sin and guilt and shame, and he gives me righteousness. It's a good deal, right? But by being in covenant with him, I am by default in covenant with his family. And remember David, when he became king, traditionally what a king would do is, are there any surviving members of the previous king's family? Let's kill them all, because they're going to grow up and have a claim on the throne. He does the opposite. He says, is there any surviving member of Jonathan's family? Because I was in covenant with Jonathan, and I want to fulfill my covenant obligations to his descendants. And they found one crippled boy And in Israel at the time, if you were a cripple, it was almost a sign of God's disfavor. And David said, no, no, bring him to my table. I will honor him. If we're in covenant with Christ, we honor his family, even those that other people would find dishonorable or disfavored. Maybe especially those. It's easy to love the honorable. And Scripture says those who are lacking in honor in the church are treated with special honor. 
So are we devoted to fellowship, or is it just something that we do because it's nice to have friends? And is it on my terms? And is it what suits me? And do I change when I move when I get offended or upset or when it's difficult? Or am I devoted? Will I press on and persevere regardless of what obstacles are in the way? I've been serving on Andrew's team as an elder for 22 years now. Do you think me and Andrew have ever argued? Do you think we've ever fought? Do you think he's ever offended me? Falsely accused me? Overlooked me? Yeah. But how many times have I disappointed him, offended him? You know what? That's life. Let's be devoted to one another. And the word fellowship here doesn't just mean friendship. It is, it's far more than just being part of a club or supporting the same team. The word for fellowship here is koinonia. Many of you will have heard of it, the Greek word koinonia. But Paul uses this word in the New Testament three different ways. He says that we have koinonia or fellowship with God. We have a relationship. We have an intimacy. We have a partnership with God. Then he uses it as koinonia that we have with each other. Same words, same kind of relationship. And then he uses koinonia as the partnership or relationship between churches. And it doesn't just speak of being friends. It talks about partnership, co-laboring, being joined or yoked together. It's not just saying we're buddies. It's saying we're friends and we love each other deeply, but we also have a mission to accomplish together. And I love that because often we think that we have to be friends before we can work together. But I think often that working together makes us friends. I love the series Band of Brothers. And that very term, Band of Brothers, and they were, I think the, the last one of them died earlier this year. Even like 50, 60 years after the war, they were still a band of brothers. When they went to war, they weren't brothers. As they went through the hell of war, as they were fired upon, as they saw comrades uh, injured and killed, as they saved each other's lives, as they went through the hell of war that forged a relationship with them as they accomplished the mission together. I don't know if Grant and I would be good friends outside of the church. But because we've got the same father and the same mission, it forges something and we've become brothers. And I want to say to some of you who are feeling on the outskirts, who are feeling disconnected, who are feeling like you're not being loved, who are feeling like you don't have koinonia, who are feeling like I don't get included, include yourself and devote yourself to the mission. And as you devote yourself to the mission, you'll find yourself bonded with those with the same mission.
So koinonia is called laboring, partnering, giving of ourselves to one another. And it's interesting that in Romans 12 verse 5, it says this, you belong to each other. You know, in, in, in the politically correct world today where people have just lost their minds, people want to be so open-minded the brains fall out. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you're interested and you say, this is my wife. And you go, what do you mean my wife? Do you own her? She doesn't belong to you. Well, actually, yes, she does. And that's not a chauvinistic statement because I belong to her as well. And I belong to you. And you belong to me. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And we belong to him first. And then because of that, we belong to one another. If my life is not my own, how do I practically express the fact that my life belongs to Jesus? By how, the way it works is my life belongs to you in Christ. And so we're in partnership. We're joined that's why um, we're warned not to be unequally yoked. And that yoking speaks of this kind of partnership. It doesn't mean you can't have friends who are unsaved. We need unsaved friends. Otherwise, how are we going to reach the lost? But when it comes to that intimacy, that union, that partnership, that koinonia, I can't have that with an unbeliever because it will kill me. The picture is two oxen pulling pulling a plow, pulling a load. And when you yoke together, the, the point is that you share the load. But if you yoke to somebody who's going in a different direction or who doesn't want to work, doesn't want to carry the load, you then try and carry the load for two, it will kill you. But when I'm yoked to somebody who has the same purpose, the same values, the same heart, the same mind, then we benefit from synergy and two people together can pull way more than two people alone can do. And the job that we have is impossible. How many of you feel like the Great Commission is a bit too big? It is. And the only way we're going to do it is when we partner together. Partner together as individuals. Partner together as families. Partner together as congregations. And partner together as churches around the world. As we are yoked together in this partnership, in this co-laboring. And that means, for example, if Grant and I, I'm picking on Grant just because he's right in front of me. If Grant and I went into business together and we said, we are partners. If we're going to be equal partners, because there's no sleeping partners in the kingdom. You know, in business, you can have a sleeping partner. Here's some money, you do the work, I'll just get the dividends. In the kingdom, we're, we're equal partners. 
And as equal partners, if we went into partnership in business and he was doing all the work and spending all the money and using all of his enormous intellect and business savvy and I was doing very little, what would happen to that business partnership at some point? See, the point is, if we're going to go into business together, then we both commit to investing our time, our treasures, and our talents into that business. This is not a business, and it doesn't operate on the same principles of, of, of a business. But that principle is the same. If we're going to be joined together, if we're co-laborers, that means we invest of our time, our talents, and our treasures together with him, knowing, and this is the easy part, knowing that any time, talents, or treasures you have, he gave to you in the first place anyway. And so there's got to be, it can't just be a the theoretical, I love you, Brew. It's easy to love with words. You know that John, in Scripture, said that French kissing is a sin? If you read in the King James Version, it says, let us love not with tongue, but with deeds. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> let us love not with words, but with actions. I can say we're in fellowship. I can say I love you. I can say we're in partnership. But unless I back it up with action, it means nothing. So how are we going to practically work out our partnership together? Look at the people who partnered with Paul when he traveled. Look at how they received him in the churches. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5, he writes to the church there, he says, you gave yourself first to the Lord and then to us. And, and there's a parallel there. He said, yes, you're committed first to the Lord, but because you were committed to the Lord, because you'd given yourself to Jesus, because of that, then you gave yourself to us. And he's saying you gave yourself to us in the same way. And again, that can't be demanded. Imagine I come in here and say, guys, I instruct you to receive me like you would Jesus. How would that go down? But what if somebody comes in here and we say, because we honor Jesus and we see you as a gift from Jesus, we, we're not, you can't take it from us, but we freely give and we will commit ourselves and give ourselves to you just the way we would if Jesus was here. There's something beautiful about that, actually. And if you think that's over the top, in Galatians 4, from verse 14. You don't have to turn there, but you can check uh, later in case you think I'm not telling the truth. He says, you received me even though my sickness was a trial to you. So, he went to the churches in Galatia. He was sick. It seemed like there was a problem with his eyes, and so he was, he was a bit, it was a bit of an inconvenience. They had to look after him. So, he says, even though my sickness was a trial, you received me as if I was an angel, as if I was the Lord himself. And he goes on to say, and you would have, if it was possible, plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Wow. That's partnership. 
That's love. That's commitment. That's koinonia. I see my brother whose eyes are, are, are giving him problems and probably looked a bit disgusting and he couldn't see properly. And they said, if only we could just pluck out our own eyes and give them to you. And then we get a guest preacher and we say, can we take up an offering? And then we all become like T-Rexes. You know what I mean? Can't reach my pocket. <laughs> T-Rex Christians. No, no, you would have given me your eyes if you could. How do we honor one another? How do we partner with one another? That is a picture of, of koinonia. That's a picture of fellowship. That's the picture of of this partnership that we have in Christ, that is devotion to fellowship. But it's not just about people that we know. The qualifications of elders include hospitality. And it doesn't mean only elders have to be hospitable. The, the list of qualifications of an elder is saying, this is the things in which they must set an example for others to follow. So actually, this is a, a list of what Christians should look like, and one of them is hospitality. And hospitality doesn't mean having your mates around for a bry. That's a small part of hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is made up of two words. Philos, which is love, like a brother, and xenos, which is foreigner or stranger. So, in other words, an elder must be hospitable. A hospital, uh, 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 an elder, or a believer for that matter, must be somebody who treats foreigners and strangers like brothers. See, it's easy to invite, invite my mates around to my house. It's a little bit more difficult to invite strangers. And Dylan said some nice things about me earlier, so I'm kind of forced to say some nice things back. It physically hurts, but... <laughs> I commend Dylan and Nolene because faithfully over the years, they have opened their homes to many, many, many people. Some of them wonderful, respectable, upright leaders of the church, and others people you wouldn't touch with a barge pole with a health inspector on the end of it. <laughs> They've opened the homes to drug addicts. They've opened the homes to, 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 to people who've got nowhere else to go. The unchurched, the churched. And they show no favors. It's not like, we'll open our homes to apostles. And, and treat them a certain way. They open their homes and treat everybody like family. And they've not always had the fanciest homes that they've lived in. They've not always had extra bedrooms and great space, and they've often not had the finances to do it. They've often had every reason not to be able to do it. And consistently. And you know what's difficult for me? Whenever I know there's somebody need hosting, it's like, who can I call? I know that if I called them, they'd say yes, and that's my challenge is I don't want to abuse them. And some people go, well, that's their gift. No, that's not their gift. That's their loving action. 
That's their devotion to Jesus. So are we open to fellowship with the likable and the respectable and the honorable and the familiar? Or will we love strangers and the outcasts? Scripture tells us God puts the lonely into family. And that's true. But in order for that to happen, somebody's got to be the first to open the hearts to the lonely. And you know, lonely people are often lonely for a reason. Either they're broken and they, don't, they find it hard to... Or, or there's something about them that's a little off or or they tend to push people away. To bring the lonely into family often requires perseverance, commitment, and devotion. We need to treat strangers like brothers. Because that represents the heart of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't just love strangers. He loved enemies. He loved you when you were an object of wrath. He loved you when you were crawling around in your own blood, helpless. He loved you when you and I would have been in that crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He loved you and me when we, like his disciples, would have denied him. He didn't just love strangers, he loved enemies. And he says, love like I've loved. Man, that's a challenge. I find it hard to love people I like. Seriously. Love my enemies. It's not just a theoretical, theological concept. It's a command for us to obey and walk out. And again, can I do it in my own strength? Well, I need to apply my own strength, but I need to partner with the Lord Jesus in this, and He do what I can't do. And give me His heart for the unlovable, for the enemies, and for strangers. Romans 12, 13 talks about extending hospitality to strangers. And in 1 Peter 4, 9 says, do it without grumbling. Okay, I'll do it. I just don't like it. Okay, I'll have them for a week, but if they eat my chocolate out the fridge one more time. And we're told in Hebrews that some have even entertained angels without knowing it by practicing hospitality. Can you see all of these different words that we use? They're all part of the same thing. We can talk about fellowship, partnership, hospitality, love. It all boils down to love. And we've got to be a people who are devoted to living this out. So how do we live it out? How do I practice hospitality? How do I practice fellowship? How do I practice this koinonia and this partnership? Many ways. But let, give, let me give you a small way. 
we've got a 412 conference coming up. And it's going to be at Morrison, which is pretty close to us. We are, I think, the closest congregation. So we are the best, we are, we are the most desirable congregation to host. <laughs> Let's open our homes, open our hearts, and open our fridges to people who are coming from around the world. You know, it was lovely hearing about earlier this desire to go to the nations, whether it be the Isle of Man or Russia or Brazil. And we're called to the nations and we're called, Jesus said, ask of me and I will give the nations as an inheritance. And I trust that, that you will put your faith out, get your passports ready, and you will come with us to the nations. But even before you come to the nations... God's bringing the nations to us. You can impact nations from where you are. I've been part of many conferences. I remember the first conference we did on the Isle of Man. I think we took 70-plus Josh Jenners across to the Isle of Man. And I think the church on the Isle of Man was about 300 people at the time. So imagine a church of 300 people hosting 70 weird South African Josh Jenners. And the reason we did it is the leaders had been to Josh Jen, the leaders had been to a 412 conference, and they said, we've fallen in love with what you're about, but we don't know how to translate that. We don't know how to take that to our people, because we can preach it, and they know the theology, but they've got to see it in practice. And we can't afford to bring them all to South Africa. What do we do? And we said, well, we'll bring South Africa to you. And it was an incredible conference. And in the space of one week, that church turned around. And I had the privilege of preaching at that conference. Andrew preached at that conference. And afterwards, you know, you, like people are going, oh, this week has been awesome. And you're asking, what's your highlight? What was your best bit? And part of you is hoping you preach. <laughs> and nobody told me my preach was the highlight. Fortunately, nobody said Andrew's preach was the highlight either. <laughs> Do you know what changed that church? It was not the preaching. It was having relationship with the saints that went. It was the conversation in homes. It was suppers together. It was watching how, uh, how our people interacted with each other and with children and with the hosts, and with the leaders, and with the Lord. I still love the sight, remember the sight of Auntie Peggy, who was 89 years old at the time, stage diving. <laughs> Worship was going wild, and she said, I've got to stage dive. And so we, <laughs> okay, Auntie Peggy. <laughs> so we kind of facilitated that so she could, gent and just one saint doing that, a whole bunch of people said, what's our excuse for not worshipping wildly? It wasn't the preaching. It was exposure in relationships to people. It was koinonia. It was partnership. It was love. And it was hospitality. And their people, they sacrificed to welcome these strangers into their homes. And the blessing they received was eternal. It changed their church and it changed them as individuals forever. As you open your homes to, to people from around the world, you'll impact nations. They'll go back different, but it will also impact you and it will change you forever.
And you will gain friendships and family that will last into eternity. You have a testimony of what God is doing. Another story, and I know I've been going long, beautiful story. Um, a few years ago, friends of ours from Brazil were coming across for the 412 conference, but they said, we want to come and have a holiday as well. So can we come a week early and stay with you for two weeks? The challenge was the conference finished on the Friday afternoon. We were moving house on the Saturday morning. So we said to them, listen, we'd love to receive you. Why don't you come stay with us for a week before the conference? And then during the conference, you, you can be hosted by somebody else. We'll introduce you because that week we've got to spend packing boxes and getting ready for our move. That's fine, they said. So they arrived. And first of all, they were shocked because we put them in our room, in our bed, because it was the only double bed we had with an ensuite bathroom. And we slept on the couch. And they're like, no, how can you do this? Well, because I can guarantee if Jesus was coming to visit, I'd give him the best. Okay? And I'm not saying you have to do that. And so they stayed with us for a week, and we had a wonderful time. They had a holiday. We drove them all over the Cape and, and introduced them to some people. We bride together. He showed me how to bride the Brazilian way. And then the first morning of the conference, his wife had a bit of an emotional breakdown. She just started having a panic attack and anxiety and all of that. And I looked at Chantel, and my wife is a very godly, amazing woman. We said, we can't go and put her with strangers in the state that she's in. So we spoke to them and said, listen, stay with us this week. They said, what about your move? We said, ah, we'll make a plan. And we did make a plan. I think we moved in a week later. It cost us a bit of money, but, you know, and for a week they stayed with us, and we just looked after her. And I thought nothing of it because it's actually not that big a deal. And then about three years later, I was at a pastor's time talking about 412, and all these, these pastors were looking in and, and wanting to know more about 412, but very skeptical because in Brazil, the word apostle, people get very allergic to because it's been abused and misused. And I could see they were all skeptical. They were kind of, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but we're not, yeah, we're not buying it. And at one point, this lady said, can I just share something? Yeah. She got up, and with tears, she said, I want you to know these guys don't just talk this. This is real to them. They genuinely love. And she shared this story. And I didn't know how much impact giving up a bed for a week had had on somebody's entire life and ministry. And the Lord opened doorways into churches we're still working with today because of that. You can change nations by letting somebody sleep in your bed. Hopefully while you're not in it. <laughs> and I know there's difficulties and there's challenges. So you could say, you know, I can't host because I can't come to the conference. It doesn't matter. I've got to work. Well, okay. So you work, still host. You might say, I have literally got no room in my house. 
Right, right now, Mike and Stacy, it would be a real challenge for them to host. Like, they've already got one extra guest that they're struggling to find room for. <laughs> you might say, I've literally not got any room. Okay. But can you prepare supper? Can you provide transport? Can you lend a car? Or at least give somebody a lift? Can you take somebody out for lunch? Could you provide financially to somebody who's got a room but no money? Oh, but my house is so small. Come to Brazil with me sometime. You'll see what it's like to host when you've got a small room. You've got family, a family of four living in a flat the size of a double garage that still managed to host four people. And you know what? It was awesome. <laughs> Devotion, not, it's easy. Devotion, I will persevere, I will commit, I will give myself to this, no matter what excuses I may have. So every single one of us can show hospitality during 412. At the very minimum, it might be going up to a complete stranger during the conference and saying, hi, where are you from? So great to have you here. If that's the limit of your capacity, then the widow's two mites principle. Remember, Jesus honored the woman who gave her two little coins because that's all she could give. But maybe... How's this? Maybe some of you go, you know what? We can open up our old house. We'll go camp. I don't know. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just trying to overcome some of the objections in your mind. <laughs> but it's not just about the 412 conference. It's about each other. It's about how we show hospitality to one another. It's how we love one another, how we fellowship, how we partner with one another, and how we partner going forward. I had a Brazilian guy staying with me a couple of years ago. And he'd been to one of our gatherings and he'd seen people prayed in and the old prayer of what's in my fridge is yours and what's in your fridge is mine. That's a bit of a joke, but not really. And then we were home the next day, and he helped himself to something. And suddenly he stopped and he said, I've got it. So what do you mean? He said, he said, when you're a guest, somebody will give you what's in your fridge. But when you're family, you go and help yourself to what's in the fridge. I said, that's it. That's the heart of what we're saying, that you're not a guest anymore. You're family. I just make sure I've got two fridges. <laughs> What's in my one fridge is yours. The other. <laughs> he said, but Mike, if I live like that, won't people take advantage of me? And the answer is, yeah, probably. And remember this. If you feel you're being used, you've probably got the right idea. Let us be used by the Lord to truly love people and show people what love is like. 
Yeah, there are questions like, I've mentioned opening your home to a drug addict. You know, that, you don't just do stupidly. There are practical questions. But there's a difference between having objections and looking for excuses not to and then looking for how to overcome obstacles. And devotion, the heart is, I will overcome obstacles. Can we be a people who overcome the obstacles to us truly being in fellowship? Can we overcome the problems and difficulties of co-laboring together? Can we overcome the challenges of seeing the lonely brought into family? Can we be a people like Paul commended and said, you gave yourself first to the Lord and then to us? Let us be a people who give ourselves first to the Lord and then to the Lord's people. Because that is how we will show Christ to the church and to a lost and broken world. That is one way we will shine bright in a dark night and make a difference and be part of changing the nations even if we physically can't get there. Amen? Can we pray? Lord, I thank you that you take a, took us and gave us a family. You took us into your family. While we were still your enemies, you showed love to us. And you gave us everything that you had when we deserved nothing. And then you said, I will choose to partner with you in bringing others into that family. Lord, we want to be a people who represent you well. We want to be devoted to you. We want to give ourselves to you. And we know that giving ourselves to you means we give ourselves to one another. Let us be a people who can do that wholeheartedly, unreservedly, and continue to do that regardless of what difficulties or opposition we find in our way. Lord, bring us into a closer relationship with each other and with you.